converting sinners a Christian duty brethren, if any of you do were from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. James v. 19, 20. A subject of present duty, and of great practical importance is brought before us in this text. That we may clearly apprehend it, let us inquire, I what constitutes a sinner. 1. A sinner is, essentially, a moral agent. So much he must be, whatever else he may, or may not be. He must have free will, in a sense of being able to originate his own activities. He must be the responsible author of his own acts, in such a sense that he is not compelled irresistibly to act one way, or another, otherwise than according to his own free choice. He must also have intellect so that he can understand his own relations and apprehend his moral responsibilities. An idiot, lacking this element of constitutional character, is not a moral agent and cannot be a sinner. He must also have sensibility so that he can be moved to action so that there can be inducement to voluntary activity and also a capacity to appropriate the motives for right or wrong action. These are the essential elements of mind necessary to constitute a moral agent. Yet these are not all the facts which develop themselves in a sinner. 2. He is a selfish moral agent devoted to his own interests, making himself his own supreme end of action. He looks on his own things, not on the things of others. His own interests, not the interests of others, are his chief concern. Thus every sinner is a moral agent, acting under this law of selfishness, having free will, and all the powers of a moral agent, but making self the great end of all his action. This is a sinner. 3. We have here the true idea of sin. It is in an important sense, error. A sinner is one that erreth. He that converteth a sinner from the error of his ways. It is not a mere mistake, for mistakes are made through ignorance or incapacity. Nor is it a mere defect of constitution, attributable to its author. But it is an error in his ways. It is missing the mark in his voluntary course of conduct. It is a voluntary divergence from the line of duty. It is not an innocent mistake, but a reckless yielding to impulse. It involves a wrong end, a bad intention, a being influenced by appetite or passion, in opposition to reason and conscience. It is an attempt to secure some present gratification at the expense of resisting convictions of duty. This is most emphatically missing the mark. 2. What is conversion? What is it to convert the sinner from the error of his ways? This error lies in his having a wrong object of life, his own present worldly interests. Hence to convert him from the error of his ways is to turn him from this course to a benevolent consecration of himself to God, and to human well-being. This is precisely what is meant by conversion. It is changing the great moral end of action. It supplants selfishness and substitutes benevolence in its stead. 3. In what sense does man convert a sinner? Our text reads, if any of you do were from the truth and one convert him implying that man may convert a sinner. But in what sense can this be said and done? I answer, the change must of necessity be a voluntary one, not a change in the essence of the soul, nor in the essence of the body, not any change, in the created constitutional faculties, but a change which the mind itself, acting under various influences, makes as to its own voluntary end of action. It is an intelligent change, the mind, acting intelligently, and freely, changes its moral course, and does it for perceived reasons. The Bible ascribes conversion to various agencies, 1. To God. 
God is spoken of as converting sinners and Christians with propriety pray to God to do so too. Christians are spoken of as converting sinners. We see this in our text. 3. The truth is also said to convert sinners. Again, let it be considered, no man can convert another without the cooperation and consent of that other. His conversion consists in his yielding up his will and changing his voluntary course. He can never do this against his own free will. He may be persuaded and induced to change his voluntary course, but to be persuaded is simply to be led to change one's chosen course and choose another. Even God cannot convert a sinner without his own consent. He cannot, for the simple reason that the thing involves a contradiction. The being converted implies his own consent, else it is no conversion at all. God converts men, therefore, only as he persuades them to turn from the error of their selfish ways to the rightness of benevolent ways. So, also, man can convert a sinner only in the sense of presenting the reasons that induce the voluntary change, and thus persuading him to repent. If he can do this, then he converts a sinner from the error of his ways. But the Bible informs us that man alone never does, or can convert a sinner. It holds, however, that when man acts humbly, depending on God, God works with him and by him. Men are laborers together with God. They present reasons and God enforces those reasons on the mind. When the minister preaches, or when you converse with sinners, man presents truth and God causes the mind to see it with great clearness, and to feel its personal application with great power. Man persuades and God persuades, man speaks to his ear, God speaks to his heart. Man presents truth through the medium of his senses, to reach his free mind, God presses it upon his mind so as to secure his voluntary yielding to its claims. Thus the Bible speaks of sinners, as being persuaded, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In this the language of the Bible is entirely natural, just as if you should say you had turned a man from his purpose, or that your arguments had turned him, or that his own convictions of truth had turned him. So the language of the Bible on this subject is altogether simple and artless, speaking right out in perfect harmony with the laws of mind. 4. What kind of death is meant by the text, shall, save a soul from death? Observe, it is a soul, not a body, that is to be saved from death, consequently we may dismiss all thought of the death of the body in this connection. However truly converted, his body must nevertheless die. The passage speaks of the death of the soul. By the death of the soul is sometimes meant spiritual death, a state in which the mind is not influenced by truth as it should be. The man is under the dominion of sin, and repels the influence of truth. Or the death of the soul may be eternal death, the utter loss of the soul, and its final ruin. The sinner is, of course, spiritually dead, and if this condition were to continue through eternity, this would become eternal death. Yet the Bible represents the sinner dying unpardoned, as going away into everlasting punishment, and as being punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of His power, to be always a sinner is awful enough, is a death of fearful horror, but how terribly augmented is even this when you conceive of it as heightened by everlasting punishment, far away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power. The the importance of saving a soul from death. Our text says, he who converts a sinner saves a soul from death. Consequently he saves him from all the misery he else must have endured. So much misery is saved. And this amount is greater in the case of each sinner saved than all that has been experienced in our entire world, up to this hour. 
This may startle you at first view, and may seem incredible. Yet you have only to consider the matter attentively, and you will see it must be true. That which has no end, which swells utterly beyond all our capacities for computation, must surpass any finite amount, however great. Yet the amount of actual misery experienced in this world has been very great. As you go about the great cities in any country you cannot fail to see it. Suppose you could ascend some lofty eminence and stretch your vision over a whole continent, just to take in at one glance all its miseries. Suppose you had an eye to see all forms of human woe and measure their magnitude, all the woes of slavery, oppression, intemperance, war, lust, disease, heart anguish. Suppose you could stand above some battlefield and hear, as in one ascending volume all its groans and curses, and take the gauge and dimensions of its unutterable woes. Suppose you could hear the echo of its agonies as they roll up to the very heavens, you must say, there is indeed an ocean of agony here. Yet all this is only a drop in the bucket compared with that vast amount, defying all calculation, which each sinner, lost, must endure, and from which each sinner, converted, is saved. If you were to see the cars rush over a dozen men at once, grinding their flesh and bones, you could not bear the sight. Perhaps you would even faint away. Oh, if you could see all the agonies of the earth accumulated, and could hear the awful groans ascending in one deafening roar, that would shake the very earth, how must your nerves quiver? Yet all this would be merely nothing compared with the eternal sufferings of one lost soul. And this is true, however low may be the degree of this lost soul's suffering, each moment of his existence. Yet farther. The amount of suffering thus saved is greater not only than all that ever has been, but than all that ever will be endured in this world. And this is true, even although the number of inhabitants be supposed to be increased a millionfold, and their miseries be augmented in like proportion. No matter how low the degree of suffering which the sinner would endure, yet our supposition, if the earth's population increased a millionfold, and its aggregate of miseries augmented in like proportion, cannot begin to measure the agonies of the lost spirit. Or we may extend our comparison, and take in all that has yet been endured in the universe, all the agonies of earth, and all the agonies of hell combined, up to this hour, be, even so. Our aggregate is utterly too scanty to measure the amount of suffering saved when one sinner is converted. Nay, more, the amount thus saved is greater than the created universe ever can endure in any finite duration. Aye, it is even greater, myriads of times greater, than all finite minds can ever conceive. You may embrace the entire conception of all finite minds, of every man, and every angel, of all minds, but that of God, and still the man who saves one soul from death saves, in that single act more misery, from being endured than all this immeasurable amount. He saves more misery, by myriads of times, and the entire universe of created minds can conceive. I am afraid many of you have never given yourselves the trouble to think of this subject. You are not to escape from this fearful conclusion, by saying that suffering is only a natural consequence of sin, and that there is no governmental infliction of pain. It matters not at all whether the suffering be governmental or natural. The amount is all I speak of now. If he continues in his sins, he will be miserable forever by natural law, and, therefore, the man who converts a sinner from his sin saves all this immeasurable amount of suffering. You may recollect the illustration used by an old divine who attempted to give an approximate conception of this idea, an enlarged conception by means of the understanding. 
There are two methods of studying and of endeavoring to apprehend the infinite, one by the reason, which simply affirms the infinite, and another by the understanding, which only approximates toward it by conceptions and estimates of the finite. Both these modes of conception may be developed by culture. Let a man stand on the deck of a ship, and cast his eye abroad upon the shoreless expanse of waters, he may get some idea of the vast, or, better, let him go out and look at the stars in the dim light of evening, he can get some idea of their number, and of the vastness of that space, in which they are scattered abroad. On the other hand, his reason tells him at once that this space is unlimited. His understanding only helps him to approximate toward this great idea. Let him suppose, as he gazes upon the countless stars of ether, that he has the power of rising into space at pleasure, and that he does ascend with the rapidity of lightning for thousands of years. Approaching those glorious orbs, one after another, he takes in more and more clear and grand conceptions of their magnitude, as he soars on past the moon, the sun, and other suns of surpassing splendor and glory. So of the conceptions of the understanding in reference to the great idea of eternity. The old writer to whom I alluded supposes a bird to be removing a globe of earth by taking away a single grain of sand once in a thousand years. What an eternity, almost, it would take. And yet this would not measure eternity. Suppose, sinner, that it is you yourself, who is suffering during all this period, and that you are destined to suffer until the supposed bird has removed the last grain of sand away. Suppose you are to suffer nothing more than you have sometimes felt, yet suppose that bird must remove, in this slow process, not this world only, for this is but a little speck comparatively, but also the whole material universe. Only a single grain at time. Or suppose the universe were a million times more extensive than it is, and then that you must be a sufferer through all this time, while the bird removes slowly a single minute grain once in each thousand years. Would it not appear to you like an eternity? If you knew that you must be deprived of all happiness for all time, would not the knowledge sink into your soul with a force perfectly crushing? But, after all, this is only an understanding conception. Let this time bus measured roll on, until all is removed that God ever created, or ever can create, even so, it affords scarcely a comparison, for eternity has no end. You cannot even approximate towards its end. After the lapse of the longest period you can conceive, you have approached no nearer than you were when you first begun. Oh, sinner, can your heart endure, or your hands be strong in the day, when God shall deal thus with you? But let us look at still another view of the case. He who converts a sinner not only saves more misery, but confers more happiness, and all the world has yet enjoyed, or even all the created universe. You have converted a sinner, have you? Indeed then think what has been gained. Does anyone ask, what then? Let the facts of the case give the answer. The time will come when he will say, in my experience of God, and divine things, I have enjoyed more than all the created universe had done up to the general judgment, more than the aggregate happiness of all creatures, during the whole duration of our world, and yet my happiness has only just begun. Onward, still onward, onward forever rolls the deep tide of my blessedness, and ever more increasing. Then look also at the work in which this converted man is engaged. Just look at it. In some sunny hour when you have caught glimpses of God, and of his love, and have said, Oh, if this might only last forever. Oh, you have said, if the stormy world were not around me. Oh, if my soul had wings like it, then would I fly away, and be at rest. 
those were only aspirations for the rest of heaven. This which the converted man enjoys above is heaven. You must add to this the rich and glorious idea of eternal enlargement, perpetual increase. His blessedness not only endures forever, but increases forever. And this is the bliss of every converted sinner. If these things be true, then, one. Converting sinners is the work of the Christian life. It is the great work to which we, as Christians, are especially appointed. Who can doubt this? 2. It is the great work of life because its importance demands that it should be. It is so much beyond any other work in importance that it cannot be rationally regarded as anything other or less than the great work of life. 3. It can be made the great work of life because Jesus Christ has made provision for it. His atonement covers the human race and lays the foundation so broad that whosoever will may come. The promise of his spirit to it each Christian in this work is equally broad, and was designed to open the way for each one to become a laborer together with God in this work of saving souls. 4. Benevolence can never stop short of it. Where so much good can be done, and so much misery can be prevented, how is it possible that benevolence can fail to do its utmost? 5. Living to save others is the condition of saving ourselves. No man is truly converted who does not live to save others. Every truly converted man turns from selfishness to benevolence, and benevolence surely leads him to do all he can to save the souls of his fellow man. This is the changeless law of benevolent action. 6. The self-deceived are always to be distinguished by this peculiarity. They live to save themselves. This is the chief end of all their religion. All their religious efforts and activities tend toward the sole object. If they can secure their own conversion so as to be pretty sure of it, they are satisfied. Sometimes the ties of natural sympathy embrace those who are especially near to them, but selfishness goes commonly no further, except as a good name may prompt them on. 7. Some persons take no pains to convert sinners, but act as if this were a matter of no consequence whatever. They do not labor to persuade men to be reconciled to God. Some seem to be waiting for miraculous interposition. They take no pains with their children or friends. Very much, as if they felt no interest in the great issue, they wait and wait for God or miracle to move. Alas, they do nothing in this great work of human life. Many professed Christians have no faith in God's blessing and no expectation, thereby, of success. Consequently they make no effort in faith. Their own experience is good for nothing to help them, because never having had faith, they never have had success. Many ministers preach so as to do no good. Having failed so long, they have lost all faith. They have not gone to work expecting success, and hence they have not had success. Many professors of religion, not ministers, seem to have lost all confidence. Ask them if they are doing anything, they answer truly, nothing. But if their hearts were full of the love of souls, or of the love of Christ, they would certainly make efforts. They would at least try to convert sinners from the error of their ways. They would live religion, would hold up its light, as natural spontaneous thing. Each one, male or female, of every age and in any position in life whatsoever, should make it a business to save souls. There are, indeed, many other things to be done, let them have their place. But don't neglect the greatest of all. Many professed Christians seem never to convert sinners. Let me ask you how is it with you? Some of you might reply, under God, I have been a means of saving some souls. But some of you cannot even say this. 
Do you know you have never labored honestly and with all your heart for this object? And you do not know that you have ever been the means of converting one sinner. What shall I say of those young converts here? Have you given yourselves up to this work? Are you laboring for God? Have you gone to your impenitent friends, even to their rooms, and by personal, affectionate entreaty, besought them to be reconciled to God? By your pen and by every form of influence you can command have you sought to save souls, and do what you can in this work? Have you succeeded? Suppose all the professors of religion in this congregation were to do this, each in their sphere, and each doing all they severally could do, how many would be left unconverted? If each one should say, I lay myself on the altar of my God, for this work, I confess all my past delinquencies, henceforth, God helping me, this shall be the labor of my life. If each one should begin with removing all the old offenses and occasions of stumbling, should publicly confess, and deplore his remissness, and every other form of public offense, confessing how little you have done for souls, crying out, Oh, how wickedly I have lived in this matter! But I must reform, must confess, repent, and change altogether the course of my life. If you were all to do this, and then set yourselves each in your place, to lay your hand, in all earnestness upon your neighbor, and pluck him out of the fire, how glorious would be the result. But to neglect the souls of others, and think you shall yet be saved yourself is one of guilt's worst blunders. For unless you live to save others, how can you hope to be saved yourself? If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If persons under the dominion of a carnal mind do not oppose, it must be owing to one of three causes. First, either they are so convicted that they dare not openly oppose, and even then they are opposed in heart, wink, or, to dly, there is nothing of the Holy Spirit in them, or three dly, which often happens from an injudicious application of means to the sympathies of the multitude, the operations of the Holy Spirit are kept out of the sinner's view, and covered up in the rubbish of animal feeling. Anything that keeps out of the sinner's view the work of the Holy Spirit, tends to prevent opposition. And everything that exposes to the sinner's view the hand of God, will certainly excite the opposition of his unregenerate heart. That excitement, therefore, which does not call out the opposition of the wicked and wrong-hearted, is either not a revival of religion at all, or it is so conducted that sinners do not see the finger of God in it. Hence we see that the more pure and holy the means are that are used to promote a revival of religion, the more they are stripped of human infirmity and sympathy, and the more like God they are, so much the more, of necessity, will they excite the opposition of all wrong hearts. 4. While a man's heart is wrong upon any subject, it is self-evident that he cannot heartily approve of what is right upon that subject, for this would involve a contradiction. It would be the same as to say, that he could feel both right and wrong upon the same subject at the same time. Hence it appears, that other things being equal, those means, and that preaching, both as to matter and manner, which call forth most of the native enmity of the heart, and that are most directly over against wrong hearts, are nearest right. Star, footnote let it not be thought, that we advocate, or recommend preaching, or using other means, with design to give offense. Nor that we suppose that the gospel cannot be preached, and that means cannot be used in a wrong spirit, and in a manner, that is highly objectionable, and may justly give offense. All such things are to be condemned. But still we do insist that holy things are offensive to unholy hearts, and while hearts remain unholy, they cannot be pleased, but with that which is unholy like themselves. The understanding may approve, the conscience may approve, but the heart will not, and, remaining unholy, cannot approve of that which is holy. 
If, therefore, a sinner who is under the dominion of a carnal mind, which is enmity against God, is pleased with preaching, it must be either, because the character of God is not faithfully exhibited, or the sinner is prevented from apprehending it in its true light, by inattention, or by being so taken up with the style and manner, as to overlook the offensiveness of the matter. If, therefore, the matter of preaching is right, and the sinner is pleased, there is something defective in the manner, either a want of earnestness, or holy unction, or something else, prevents the sinner from seeing, what preaching ought to show him, that he hates God and his truth. Hence, we see the folly of those who are laboring to please persons whose affections are in a wrong state upon religious subjects. They cannot be pleased with anything right and holy while their hearts are in this wrong state, for this we have just seen would involve a contradiction. This shows why so much wrong feeling is often stirred up in revivals of religion. It is the natural effect of pure revivals to stir up wrong feeling in wrong hearts, Revivals of religion on earth stir up wrong feeling in hell, they will disturb the same spirit and stir up the same feelings whenever they come in contact with rebellious hearts, whether in the church or out of it. Wherever the Holy Spirit comes or is seen to operate, the opposite spirit is disturbed of course. A great degree of right and holy feeling among saints will naturally stir up a great degree of unholy and wicked feeling in all those hearts that are determinately wrong. The more right and holy feeling there is, the more wrong and unholy feeling there will be, of course, unless sinners and carnal professors bow and submit. They cannot walk together, because they are not agreed, and the more holy and heavenly the saints become in their affections and conduct, the farther apart they will be, until the light of eternity will set them in feeling and affections, as far as sunder as heaven and hell. This shows that the difference between heaven and hell, as it regards moral character, and happiness and misery, consists in the different state of the hearts or affections of their respective inhabitants. This demonstrates, beyond all contradiction, that sinners cannot be saved unless they are born again. In other words, it is plainly impossible, in the nature of things, that sinners should walk and be happy with saints and holy angels without an entire change in their affections. Sinners cannot walk with the saints here. As soon as the saints cease to walk after the course of this world, sinners think it strange that they run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of them. As soon as Christians awake, and become spiritual and active, holy and heavenly, and break off from their vain and wicked associations with the world, sinners are uniformly distressed and offended. They try to imagine that it is something wrong in the saints and in revivals that offends them. But the truth is, it is the little that is right in the saints, and that in which there is the most of God in revivals, that offends them most. And were the saints as holy as angels are, or as holy as they will be in heaven, sinners must of course be so much the farther from having any community of feeling with them, and as saints rise in holiness, and sinners sink in sin, they will go farther, and farther apart forever and ever. I remark, lastly, that this shows why the lives and preaching of the prophets of Christ and his apostles and the revivals of the early ages of the church met with so much more violent opposition from carnal professors of religion and from ungodly sinners and is offered to preachers and revival in these days. It is not to be denied that the saints in those days had trials of cruel mocking and scourging, yea, of bonds and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, wink, they wandered in deserts, in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. 
it is not and cannot be denied that the preaching of the prophets of Christ and his apostles and of primitive ministers was opposed with great bitterness by many professed saints and by multitudes of ungodly sinners more than that of any preacher of the present day. Nor is it to be concealed that professors of religion were often leaders in this opposition, that they stirred up the Romans to crucify Jesus and afterwards to persecute and destroy his saints and crucify his apostles that even the religious teachers and learned doctors of the law endeavored to prejudice the multitude against the Savior and to prevent their listening to his discourses, he hath a devil and is mad, said they, why hear ye him? They led the way in opposing the apostles in the revivals in which they were engaged. We must admit, too, that those revivals made a great deal of noise in the world, insomuch that the apostles were accused of turning the world upside down and that sinners were often greatly hardened by the preaching of Christ, and his apostles were filled with great wrath and opposed with such bitterness, that Christ told his apostles to let them alone. In some places where the apostles preached, divers were so hardened, that they contradicted, and blasphemed, and spake evil of this way, insomuch that the apostles were forced to leave and go to other places, and sometimes to leave under very humiliating circumstances, but just escaping with their lives. Now these are facts that we need not blush to meet, as they are easily accounted for, upon the principle contained in the text, and illustrated in this discourse. All these things afford no evidence that the prophets, and Christ, and his apostles, were imprudent and unholy men, that their preaching was too overbearing and severe, or that there was something wrong in the management of revivals in those days. The fact is, that the prophets were so much more holy in their lives, and so much bolder, and more faithful in delivering their messages, that Christ was so much more searching, and plain, and pungent, and personal in his preaching, and so entirely separate from sinners in his life. The apostles were so pungent and plain in their dealing with sinners, and professed saints, and so self-denying, and holy in their lives, that carnal professors, and ungodly sinners could not walk with them. The means that were then used to promote revivals were more holy and free from alloy, and they now are, there was less of mere sympathy, and of that hypocritical suavity of manner, and of those embellishments of language that are calculated and designed to court the applause of the ungodly. Renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, they preached, not with the enticing words of men's wisdom, but with great plainness of speech, so that the ungodly, in the church, and out of it, were filled with wrath. Stephen was so holy and searching in his address that the elders of Israel gnashed upon him with their teeth. But this is no evidence that he was imprudent. The fact that the revivals of the present day are much more silent and gradual in their progress, and they were on the day of Pentecost and at many other times and places, and create much less noise and opposition among cold professors and ungodly sinners, does not prove that the theory of revivals is better understood now than it was then, nor that those ministers and Christians who are engaged in these revivals are more prudent than the apostles and primitive Christians, and to suppose this would evince great spiritual pride in us nor are we to say that the human heart is changed, or that the character of God has become less offensive to the carnal mind. No. The fact is, the prophets and Christ, and his apostles, and the primitive saints, were more holy, more bold and active, more plain and pungent in their preaching, less conformed to this crazy world. In one word, they were more prudent and more like heaven, than we are. These are the reasons, why they were more hated than we are, why their preaching and praying gave so much more offense, and ours. 
revivals in their days were more free from carnal policy and that management that tends to keep out of the sinner's views the naked hand of God. These are the reasons why they made so much more noise and the revivals that we witness in these days and stirred up so much of earth and hell to oppose them that they convulsed and turned the world upside down. It was known then that men could not serve God and mammon. It was seen to be true that if any man will live godly in Christ Jesus, he shall suffer persecution. It was understood then that if ministers pleased men, they were not the servants of Christ. The church and world could not walk together, for then they were not agreed. Let us not be puffed up and imagine that we are prudent and wise, and have learned how to manage carnal professors and sinners, whose carnal mind is enmity against God, so as not to call forth their opposition to truth and holiness, as Christ and his apostles did. But let us know that if they have less difficulty with us and with our lives and preaching and they had with theirs, it is because we are less holy, less heavenly, less like God, and they were. If we walk with the lukewarm and ungodly, or they with us, it is because we are agreed. For two cannot walk together except they be agreed.